All righty, we have a great episode of Side Retired, the MLB podcast coming at you guys today. The head coach of Wake Forest Baseball is joining us today. So, Henry, let's hit the intro music and we will get right into this. Good. Hello and welcome to this edition of Side Retired, the only podcast. This is Dylan Campione, joined alongside Henry Kalani. As always, and Henry, we've got a special guest with us on this episode if you want to introduce him to our audience. Yeah, so today we have a very cool interview coming at you guys. We have the head coach of Wake Forest Baseball, Coach Tom Walter. How are you doing, Coach? I'm great, Henry. Dylan, thanks for having me. It's a good day. Absolutely. And so for people who don't know Coach, Coach actually went to my school right now, Georgetown University. He's now had a prestigious baseball career in the coaching world. He coached at multiple schools before reaching Wake Forest. So we will get the insighted perspective into what that career journey was like so far. So coach, if you want to get us started, I know you started here on the hilltop and then you worked your way into the coaching world. What was that sort of like? Did you play in college? Did you know you wanted to be a coach? What was that like? Yeah, so uh, played at Georgetown, as you said, um, and had four great years there. Really loved my time on the Hilltop, just my teammates, coaches, the university, the Washington, D.C. community. Just awesome for me. It was just a I came from a small town in Pennsylvania, Johnstown, a little coal mine, steel mill town. So Washington, D.C. was a, was a big difference for me. And it really helped me kind of um, grow as a person and kind of turn into the to the man I was uh, hopefully that I was supposed to, to be. but um, you know like everybody else I think I wanted to play in the major leagues um, you know when I think the first time I realized that might not happen was when I saw Mo Vaughn play uh, for Seton Hall we, we played the same position and when I saw him play I was like man that that must be what a big leaguer looks like and and I'm not sure I could do that so um so you know at the, at some point we all uh, figure out that we're not going to make our our living playing baseball and and we go to kind of plan B and when I graduated Georgetown you know I was still thinking about kind of continuing to play and and it was kind of you know and trying to figure that out but I was also kind of interviewing for some finance jobs investment banking jobs things like that and I you know, I'd sit in those interviews and I kind of look across at the person that I was that, that I was talking to and I'd be like, do I really want to be this person in five <laughs> years? I, you know, and I, I never got a yes answer to that. So um, fast forward to that next almost I guess it was late August. My dad calls me and he, my dad knew the assistant basketball coach at George Washington. University, Scott Beaton, and he said that GW was looking for a grad assistant in baseball. And, and would I be interested? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And I, I really just took the job really more because I was, was going to get my master's and try to figure out what I was going to do. I was going to get an MBA and then figure it out from there. But I quickly figured out that I really loved coaching. So I uh, worked for a guy there by the name of John Castleberry. And, um, you know, John really kind of helped mentor me that first semester and 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 kind of, you know, really got me excited about being a, a potentially making coaching my career. But you know, prior to that GA position, uh, you know, it really hadn't occurred to me that, that that I should be a college coach. But, you know, certainly had a lot of great coaches along the way that that once I that that kind of idea popped into my head, I was like, man, that makes sense. I think it's something I'd like to do. So one thing that I wanted to like quickly ask, so eventually you become you become the head coach of George Washington and then you move to New Orleans. 
And then obviously now from 2010 to now you're at Wake Forest, was there any difference in your coaching style? Was there any changes that you think you had to make as you moved up the ranks to eventually becoming the head coach of a Power Five um, conference school? Yeah, lots of changes, truthfully. I mean, you know, when you're starting out at GW as a head coach, I was, you know, just turned 28 years old. I got the job when I was 27 and, you know, trying to figure out who I was as a coach and, and what my coaching style was and, you know, just trying to learn from as many people as I could and, and pull in ideas from wherever I could. Um, but, you know, back then in those days, you know, you are you don't have a huge staff. You know, the, the higher you go up the ladder, the more support people you have. Um, but so when you're coaching at GW, you know, you're working with the hitters, you're working with the pitter, pitchers, you're cutting the grass, you're raking the field. <laughs> you know, you're painting the dugout, you're, you know, you're, you know, you're ordering equipment, you're, you're dealing with lockers, you know, and handing out locks, the, the whole nine yards, like you do everything from, from soup to nuts. Um, but as you move up the chain, um, you do less of that stuff because you have more help. When I got to the University of New Orleans, we had a full-time groundskeeper. So I didn't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore. And we had a full-time equipment manager. So I didn't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, a bigger assistant coaching staff. So you spend less of your time, you know, working with the players directly one on one for individual work. And you spend more of your time kind of cultivating relationships with alumni and and, you know, doing, you know, radio shows and, and media obligations and things like that. So, you know, you're, you're definitely you're I think the higher up you go the less things you do that attracted you to coaching. Like when you first start coaching, like you get into coaching because you love recruiting, you love working with the players, like the higher you go, the less recruiting you do. And then you do it on campus and you're still obviously, you know, recruiting, but just not as much, you know, you're not on, on the road watching as many games as, as the assistant coaches are. Um, and same thing working with the players. I love to work with the players, but I just don't have as much time in my day to do that as I, as I used to. So, you know, I'm obviously there for all the team stuff, but the, some of the individual stuff or most of the individual stuff is up to the, up to the assistant coaches and the player development folks to take care. Of. So, um, but the flip side of that is too, is like you, you know, depending on where you are, you have to change your coaching style too. So, you know, when I was at George Washington, we were kind of a startup program, um, They'd had some success under under John Castleberry previously, but the uh, in the time that I was I was gone after being assistant coach, the program had kind of fallen on hard times. So it's kind of a rebuild mode um, and kind of setting the setting the team culture. Um, and then you get to the University of New Orleans, and it's a much different type kid at the University of New Orleans, the, the different type player at GW. You had some players there because of baseball. You had other players there because of academics. You had some players there because of Washington D.C. You know, at University of New Orleans, like a, a lot of the players there, you know, well, not a lot, all the players, there were really there because of baseball. Like they weren't there because of the academics. They weren't there necessarily. And a lot of them were first kind of the first people in their family to even go to college. So, again, it's just a different type of a student and a different type of a person at UNO than it was at GW. So you have to change your coaching style to reflect your your personnel. Um, and then you get to Wake Forest, you know, from UNO, and it's kind of Wake Forest is a lot more like GW in terms of the of the seriousness of the of the students academically. And again, not that the UNO guys weren't serious; they all got degrees and and made education a priority. But again, they made more of a baseball decision going there than than say the GW and Wake Forest kids did. So, you know, again, and then you get into the ACC and and Wake Forest, and, and when you get into the ACC. 
you kind of transition into this whole other role. You're kind of more the CEO of the baseball operation than you are a coach. Um, you know, again, your alumni obligations get ramped up, your, you know, your department meetings and head coach meetings and things like that, your your league meetings, you know, everything just kind of intensifies and, and ramps up. So, again, um, like I said, you know, in the beginning, the higher you go, kind of the less of your the less of your time is spent on baseball, which is which is curious. Absolutely. So sort of adding on to that point and seeing that a little bit when I've talked with the Georgetown coach here, sort of what is that daily routine like? Obviously, it might be different from when you were at, as you're mentioning, in George Washington, you might have had to cut grass at six in the morning and be at the field bright and early. So now that you're here at Wake Forest and it's probably one of those bigger schools, more media availabilities you're talking about, what is the daily routine like? What is the daily grind of being involved with college baseball? Yeah. So, um, you know, this time of year, obviously, a lot of it is centered around practice planning and, and, and prepping for games. So, you know, we have staff meetings almost every day um, just to talk about, you know, what we're going to what, what the day is going to look like, what the week is going to look like. You know, but you're you're pulling in all sorts of different people at this level. You know, you've got your strength coach involved. You've got your athletic trainer involved. You got your analytics team involved. You got your player development. You know, we've got a pitching lab coordinator who's also our pitching player development person. We've got a student assistant in Will Craig who's kind of serving as our our player development uh, person for the hitters. You know, so you've got all these different kind of people that you're you're pulling into these meetings and and kind of coordinating to make sure we're all on the same page for for what we're trying to get out of the day as an organization. You know, we get you know, such little time with our guys because of their, their classroom commitments. You know, the, I'm a little jealous sometimes of the pro guys because they have all day. Um, you know, for us, you know, our guys don't get over to the stadium usually till about 2.15 or so. You know, we'll start the day with a team meeting. Um, so the team meeting from 2.30 to 3 o'clock, you know, we'll talk about the practice plan for the day. We'll have kind of, we'll show, usually show a video of some sort um, and have kind of a message of the day, you know, whether we want to talk about habits or, you know, or, or again, you know, show a Kobe Bryant video and just talk about competing or, or whatever, just something, you know, kind of mix that up day in, day out. And then we're, we're on the field at three o'clock and we're, we're practicing from three to about six, um, a good hard practice. So again, you know, having a really intentional plan of what we want to get out of those three hours and maximizing those three hours is, is really one of the most important things we do, you know, but having the analytics team ready to, to chart that practice and figure out kind of, you know, what, what information and data, what do we want videoed? What do we want to know that that happened at practice that we can discuss, um, you know, and, and make changes based on. So, you know, again, I'd say, you know, starting, you know, when I get into the office first thing in the morning, you know, it's a combination of, of getting ready for practice, staff meetings, pulling everybody together. And then there's always some, you know, some administrative stuff, you know, whether it's alumni stuff, you know, we send out a weekly newsletter this time of year. And, you know, so pulling that stuff together and, and kind of reaching out to our alums, you know, fundraising is part of my my day almost every day. Um you know, obviously, you know, getting ready for the spring season. We have a travel person here um, with Anthony Travel and our ops guy takes care of a lot of the travel stuff. But, you know, I'm still certainly involved in, in all those things as well. So it's a I guess I've, I've got my hand in a lot of different pots, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, You mentioned it quickly, but I wanted to touch on the pitching lab that Wake Forest has set up, which is clearly had great success. I and mean, you can see just from the prospect rankings for the the upcoming season, two of your pitchers are in the top 50 ranked prospect for the MLB draft. It's 
and it's clearly been paying dividends for you over the past few years. So what would you say has been the biggest success of the pitching lab and how has that process really impacted the culture of the team? Yeah. So, you know, we put the pitching lab in, in 2000 and I guess fall of 2018 is when it finally went in. So it really wasn't in use till spring of 2019. So, you know, we've had it now almost three years where, where we've been using it. Um, and it's really just been within the last maybe year or year and a half where we've really made it more actionable. You know, when we first got it, you know, quite honestly, we, we weren't 100 percent sure what we had and we weren't 100 percent sure how we make the data actionable. Like that's the number the number one thing we talk about as a staff all the time is, OK, we've got all this amazing data, but you know, how does that translate into to, to player development and and not only player development, but winning games? You know, so there's there's kind of two parts of that that pitching lab. One, how do we get guys to to move better, throw harder, you know, and and have better stuff? But also, how do we how do we keep them healthy? Um, so, you know, again, you know, that first year we we're kind of feeling our way through, you know, how we use this. We've just been able to kind of get better and better um, with it. And now we've gotten to the point where. The last two years, we've had a biomechanical conference, um, you know, in December where we've brought in people from the outside to see what we're doing. We've kind of pulled the curtain back, so to speak. And, um, you know, we've had a couple hundred people each of those two years. We've had 15 major league pitching coaches um, that have paid money to come to that conference, which I think is pretty cool. Right. Um, you know, so, you know, we're, we're the, the one cool thing that we've learned is we, we, you know, to do it right, you have to pull together, you know, kind of all the different disciplines, you know, not only do you have to pull together the biomechanics and, and how you move, but you have to pull together the art of pitching, you know, as well as the analytics, you know, what's the ball doing? So we've got a really good plan now of, of kind of what we're doing in there and, and how to use that data. And, you know, we've had the last few weeks, we've had probably, you know, 12 major league pitchers come through here and, and get assessed in our lab. Mike Clevenger was just in here. Ian Anderson was just in here. And the list kind of goes on of, of major leaguers that we've had that are coming into our lab to get, you know, assessed by, by our, our team of people and our, and our biomechanist, Kristen Nicholson leading the way. Like a lot, I, I joke all the time, a lot of, a lot of college programs um, and even professional organizations say they have pitching labs, you know, but the, but the, the, the reality is unless you have the biomechanist, like unless you have a scientist, you don't have a lab. Like you have, we joke about it. You have, if you, if you have a bunch of cameras without a scientist, then you have surveillance and that's great, <laughs> but, but you don't have a lab. Um, you need Kristen Nicholson and the biomechanist to the lab and, and Mike McFerrin, our pitching lab coordinators has been a rock star. He's really helped us grow this uh, uh, tremendously. Yeah. And I, I know Dylan has a question, but quickly, just for the audience, I want to say if you tune into a Wake Forest baseball game, I strongly suggest you tune into a Rhett Louder start because he will be the perfect example of what they've got going on there. You'll notice the hair to start off is the long flowing hair. And then you were going to see just, the ball move in ways that you don't think you've ever seen before. It's been, and I think that's a real testament to what you guys have um, have going on down there in, at Wake Forest, and it's just a prime example. Well, he really is. He's come a long way since he's been here. I mean, he came in as a, you know, a, a high school kid who was throwing, you know, 88, 89 miles an hour and could really pitch. Um, and now he's a young man that, like you said, can manipulate the baseball and is, you know, 94 to 96 um, and, and, and still commands it as well as he ever has. So, 
um, for sure. And Teddy McGraw is another one. I mean, Teddy's going to be our other uh, knock on wood, be our other first rounder this year. I mean, you know, Teddy's stuff so far has been just electric off the charts. His outing last week, he was 95 to 99, you know, for, for 62 pitches and uh, with two different breaking balls and a really good changeup. I mean, he's got four real pitches. So I, you know, again, you're going to see, you're going to see the name Teddy McGraw climbing up the boards too, alongside Rhett Louder. So it's, it's kind of exciting to, to your point, to see it all kind of come to fruition. No, it's absolutely amazing. Cause especially when you see, and you were also mentioning this with combining with the uh, biomechanics lab is when you take into consideration, there's just that raw and natural feeling of seeing a pitcher and realizing, shoot, that's a first round draft pick. That just, the ball looks and sounds and feels good versus the numbers are also backing you up and saying that. Um, so I guess one thing that Henry and I were also wondering, especially as a former player, you've seen both sides of baseball, where there's the people who are like the money ball scene and it's, I see a good baseball player and I know a good baseball player. And then there's also the exact opposite where it's, I'm only looking at the spreadsheet numbers and that's what tells me what pitch I should throw and when. So sort of how, as a great baseball man like yourself, do you sort of think balance the two, take into consideration analytics and also the eye test? Yeah, that's a great question, Dylan. And I think it's, I think it's perfectly well worded and it's really just a, a hybrid of both. You know, I think, I think what we like to do typically is, is, is see things with our eyes, you know, and, and what do we see with our eyes? What, what things stand out with our eyes and, and what does our baseball experience tell us? And then we look at the numbers and compare the numbers and ask ourselves, does that make sense? You know, do the numbers match what we see with our eyes? And if the answer is no, and it doesn't quite honestly, it doesn't really matter if the answer is yes or no. If the answer is yes, then we just kind of sharpen what they're doing. If the answer, the answer is no, then we kind of dig underneath it and figure out why, you know, why are the numbers telling us something different than what, what our eyes are seeing? You know, again, you know, you'll see some guys that, that throw up, you know, a, a 94, five mile an hour fastball, but they, they seem to get hit all the time. And then you get these other guys that throw an 89 mile an hour fastball and they never get hit. You know, so kind of why is that? And and getting underneath that, you know, we learn a lot. And and one thing we try to do in all this is is kind of maximize what makes our pitchers unique. Our our analytics team has built this this spreadsheet of data over the last five years in the power fives where they've ranked everybody in these different categories like release side and induced vertical break and spin rate. And, you know, again, I think there's, you know, eleven or twelve different metrics they put into this. And they rank these these guys, you know, one through whatever. And so everybody that we put into our into this program, it kind of spits out a number. Well, this guy's in the 99th percentile for induced vertical break, or he's in the, you know, he's in the the 85th percentile for release side, or you know, or or you know, approach angle, or you know, release height. You know, those are all things that that we're looking at. And and we're what we're looking at is is for pitchers who do things uniquely that the, the hitter doesn't really see it the way he thinks like perfect example is Josh Hader. Like Josh Hader is really good because he's got a really low release height and he rides the ball high. So, but that's not what the hitter expects. The hitter expects somebody with a low release height that they're going to sink the ball. Right. But Josh Hader does the opposite of what the hitter thinks and the hitter's brain and no matter how much you talk to the hitter about this is what's going to happen, the hitter's brain is, just goes based on its experience. So it, the ball does something different than the hitter expects. So we're always using this information, you know, to kind of figure out what our guys do that's unique and that's going to going to make them effective against hitters. And now the second step to that is we're trying to pair that now 
with the hitter strengths and the and the hitter swing planes so we can come up with kind of a pitch calling plan you know based on both sides of that coin yeah and now we we talked a lot about the pitching but I I really don't want to sell the well, the Wake Forest lineup, especially last year. Don't sell those bats short. I got um affectionately affectionately called Rake Forest towards the end of the year because you guys just couldn't seem to stop hitting. And so obviously you don't want to give away too many secrets. But what do you think is really special about what you guys are doing down at Wake Forest that is creating such a incredible um incredible lineup and incredible process for the hitting? Well, I think it's two parts of it, Henry. I, I think one, we we recruit, you know, offensive players. You know, you recruit good offensive players. You know, part of it is, you know, you got to start with the right materials. And and we we have talented kids who come in here and and we put, you know, their their offense as a priority. You know, we 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 invest probably more money into our corner position players than most people do because we're looking for that offense and and that has yielded results for us. But the, but the second part of that is Bill Salento, our hitting coach, who's been here the same 14 years I've been here, is really great at developing hitters. He's really great at, at kind of seeing those guys as freshmen, having a vision for what he wants those guys to look like as juniors, and then kind of slowly building them through the process and, and not rushing it. Like I think sometimes when you rush hitters, is you make mistakes. You ask them to do things they're not quite ready for. And it sets it back. We've talked about this before. If you push a freshman too much, you might lose him his whole freshman year. And so you've got you to have a good feel of kind of when to bring guys along, when to give them information, you know, when to let them go out there and fail. You know, and I think Coach Salento's just got a really good feel for who his guys are. And I think part of that is just because he, he understands what makes them tick and he, and he coaches them all differently. He doesn't coach any of those guys the same. So you know, you look at guys like Brock Wilkin and Nick Kurtz and Adam Ciceri and Pierce Bennett and Tommy Hawk, and you just look at how much they've improved since the days he stepped a foot on campus. I think if you talk to any one of our hitters, you know, they would tell you that they're a better hitter now than they ever thought possible. Absolutely. And then sort of adding on to that, and again, we don't want to give away too many of the tricks of the trade at Wake Forest, but sort of you mentioned the whole recruiting thing, and there's probably a lot of high schoolers listening to this, maybe some even college guys that want to transfer, stuff like that, that are thinking, Wake Forest is the pinnacle, whether it's I want to work in the pitching lab or whether it's I want to work with the great hitting coaches. However, you also have to take into consideration Wake Forest is amazing academic school as well. And you mentioned earlier balancing academics and athletics as being really important. So what would you say if there's any advice maybe in broad terms about transferring to Wake Forest, going to Wake Forest as a high schooler? What is that player you're looking for? Any advice for that guy who's on the couch right now listening to this thinking, here's the head coach that I want to play for one day. <laughs> Here's the advice type of thing. Yeah, and again, we what we want is we want players that really want to be here. You know, we want players that are going to be invested in our program. I tell our guys, you know, very very clearly about the, these are the goals for our program. Goal number one is that you leave here a better human being. You know, that you're more comfortable in your own skin. That you're going to go out lead a life of of, of service over self. You're going to be a good husband, a good father, employer, employee. Again, we want you all to be major leaguers, but that's not our number one goal. Our number one goal is that we help you on your journey to becoming a better man. You know, goal number two for our guys is, is their relationship with each other. You know, that brotherhood that we want, that team culture that we're trying to build. You know, we talk about team culture. We talk about shared experiences and shared language. So, um you know, steps one and two for these for these young men out there that are certainly talented enough to play here is 
is one, are you coming here to help yourself become a better version of you, you know, as a human being? And two, are you going to invest in your relationship with your teammates? And if the answer to those two questions is yes, then we can start to talk about baseball. You know, goal number three for us is, is that they get a meaningful degree that's going to help them in life after baseball. Goal number four for us is that they develop as an individual player. And then goal number five is that we win. And, you know, winning is important. You know, it's super important. Um, you know, we want to win national championships and, you know, I have to ask myself all the time, you know, so I, I, I do a lot of reading and Jim Collins is one of the guys I read a lot from good to great. You guys have probably read his stuff, yeah. right? One of the things he talks about to, to take a, an organization from good to great is they have to have a level five leader and a level five leader is somebody that's willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish the mission of the organization. So if you ask me, if I'm a level five leader, I ask you, well, that depends on what Sorry. That depends on what you think the goal of the organization is. Like if you think the goal of the organization is to win a national championship, then no, I'm not a level five leader because I'm not willing to do whatever it takes to win a national championship. If you ask me that, if you tell me that the goal of the organization is to develop amazing young men who go on to life to, to, to be good husbands, fathers, and people and invest in their relationship with each other, that brotherhood, who also have a chance to win a national championship, then that's exactly who I am, right? That's that's exactly what we are and what we do. So when we look at people in the portal, we're looking for people who get that and they want to invest in those and have those same priorities, quite honestly. Like, you know, if kids are going to make a decision to come to Wake Forest because of NIL money or because they're going to make more money in the draft, that's a transactional decision. That's not who we are. We want people that are coming here for relational decisions. They're coming here because they want to be part of, of what we're building. They want to be part of our team culture and they want to be, you know, a deke for life. Absolutely. And that almost transitions perfectly, Henry, to the last thing that we wanted to ask you about, because I know you've limited time throughout your day, but there's this phrase at Wake Forest that is together we stand. And then sort of looking back um, on your career, whether it's coaching in general, the Wake Forest years, looking back at George Washington in New Orleans, or as well as when you were playing on the hilltop, that phrase, together we stand, what do you think that means for you individually, as a team, Wake Forest, just in general, that phrase in those three words? Well, it means everything to me. I mean, I think it's it's everything that that I that I stand for, you know, from back in my time in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. You know, again, um, it's a community where people really care about one another. They pitch in, they help out, they take you in. You know, it's a community where anybody in my hometown would give you the shirt off their back if you asked. Them. And I and I just feel like, you know, that I've taken that same mentality into, into everywhere I've been and everything I've done, you know, since then. And, you know, we're, we're always better together than we are, you know, as individuals. And, and it has more meaning when you do it together. You know, it's funny. And I talk to our guys about this all the time. But like when you when you see whoever wins the Super Bowl this coming Sunday, whether it's the Eagles or the Chiefs, like when you interview the Super Bowl MVP, he's not going to be talking about his performance or who did this on the field. He's going to be talking about his brothers in the clubhouse. And he's going to be talking about the, the guys in the locker room. And when you talk to players that have retired, that's the thing they miss. They don't remember the big wins or the big losses as much as they remember the relationships with each other. So for me, you know, it's just all about investing in those relationships and, and playing for, for something bigger than yourself. You know, again, as they as they like to say, play for the name on the front, not the name on the back. And, uh, you know, that's something our guys hear, um, you know, daily from us as a staff. And it's something that I know they they believe in or they, you know, they wouldn't be here. 
Love it. Henry, you got anything else? This is really informative. Really great talking to you, coach. Uh, thank you so much. No, thank you guys. Appreciate all you do. And uh, we're here if you need us. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you. Great news. Side Retired is now partnered with SeatGeek. For all ticketing needs, go to SeatGeek.com and use promo code SideRetiredPod in all capitals for $20 off your first order. We've got you covered from all things ranging from sporting events to concerts, including the MLB and NFL. Yes, this means we're officially taking you out to the ballgame. And now for the rest of today's edition of Side Retired Podcast. All right, Henry, a great interview just now talking with the head coach of Wake Forest. What were your thoughts on that? That was just an absolutely incredible experience. I think he offered a ton of advice for any um, prospects looking to play college baseball. And I think everybody should give this a listen. And it was a really great time as just an interviewer. Absolutely. And of course, look forward to our previous guest, the Notre Dame head coach facing off against Wake Forest head coach around March 17th, I believe. Definitely looking forward to seeing them match up. Great interviews as well as a couple of great college coaches coming on in the next upcoming weeks. Henry and I look forward to doing all those interviews in the future. So for Dylan and Henry, until the next time, we'll see you and the side is retired.